Since our last episode about Iran back in December, news about Iran and Iranians keeps on showing up on our news media. So now that it's the Iranian New Year, it's a good time to look at the history behind these news. Or wait, is it the Iranian New Year or the Persian New Year? <laughs> Shouldn't I already know this? Oh, see, there I would say don't call it the Persian New Year. Very good question. Um, I could even ask this if I may just ask another one. Masa Amini, who was murdered in September, was Kurdish. So was she Persian or was she Iranian? They are not necessarily referred to as the king of Persia. The king of referred to as the king of the Persians. And they themselves, so for example, mm. Darius says, I am Darius, da, 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 a Persian. So is the term Iran broader than the term Persia? Hellenism is not a foreign element in Iranian history. It becomes a foreign element because of, again, 19th century Europeans defining Greeks as their ancestors. Or is, is, Am I reading too much into this, Dr. Rizakhani? No, you're not. Uh, you, are, you are putting your finger rather on a very, very thorny issue. Persian Achaemenids, Parthian or Sassids, and Persians, uh, Sasanians, are these grand pre-Islamic um, dynasties of Iran. So the, the second Persian Empire is Persian as opposed to the Parthians, not Persian as opposed to Iranians and that the rest weren't Iranians. Or if you are a Muslim, you know, these systems are so corrupt and have so much pissed off their own people that people welcome Islam with open arms. Neither of these are true. Nobody welcomed Islam with their open arms. And <laughs> Muslims didn't really force. They couldn't force. How many people could be in Arabia that could force the entire population of the centers of civilization at that time? Of the, uh, yeah. at that time? And what really happens is that they don't lose the war. They lose their emperor. They lose Khosrow II. On the other I hand, I thought his son killed him. Well, the son, no, the son doesn't kill, kill him. Okay, the story is that, but Sasanians are inevitable. As I said, I think most of what we recognize as Iranian, which the Pahlavis were then trying to promote, is actually rooted in the Sasanian period. Did you know that after Iran fell under Muslim Arab rule, for about two generations, the Sasanian royal family, with help from China, attempted to retake Iran from the Arabs. Today you can travel to China and visit the tomb of the heir to the Sasanian dynasty. He was treated with honor in China and was buried in the mausoleum of the Tang Chinese emperor. Hey there news pillars, today is March 17, 2023. And this is Adele, the host of a History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how did we get here? They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars 
enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink or both and let's get into it. Although the protests in Iran have quieted and events in Iran are not constantly headline news anymore, like they were the days and weeks after the murder of Ms. Massa Amini, we still hear about Iran and Iranians in our news. For example, at the 2023 Grammys in February, Dr. Jill Biden, our first lady, presented the first ever Best Song for Social Change Award to Baraye, a song by Shervin Hajipur, who was arrested by Iran's regime. Dr. Biden stated that this song became the anthem for the Massa Amini protest, a powerful call for freedom and women's rights. Then we all heard and watched the strange and really incredible news about the poisoning of girls in many Iranian schools. Also recently, with more frequency than before, international and U.S. news media have been interviewing Mr. Reza Pahlavi, the Crown Prince of Iran, no doubt because of the continuing protest and tensions in Iran. And just last week, China brokered a deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia to restore their relations after seven years of severed diplomatic ties. But here's the thing, China and Iran have had relations for millennia. In this episode, we'll learn about a Chinese empire that helped Iran after the Arabs conquered Iran. We'll also learn about the difference between the terms Iran and Persia, and also get to know the last pre-Islamic Persian Empire, or should I say, Iranian Empire. And one more thing, Nowruz, the Iranian New Year, which is celebrated by 300 million people around the world, is on Monday, March 20th at 2024 p.m. here on the West Coast. Well, actually, it's at 2.24 and 28 seconds. That sounds strange, doesn't it? Why isn't the Persian New Year at midnight, like our own New Year on December 31st? Well, although the Persian New Year falls on March 20th or March 21st, its exact time changes every year in sync with the spring equinox. When I was a little boy in Iran, I remember one particular Iranian New Year that was at 3 or 4 a.m. Well, guess what? We all got dressed up in our best clothes and went to visit our grandparents. And the streets were full of people who were also visiting their family members. And this celebration went on for two weeks. <laughs> two weeks of no school and lots of toys, delicious treats, and tons of close and distant cousins. To play with. To better understand Iran and Persia and learn what happened to the Sasanian Empire, I spoke with Dr. Khodadad Rezakhani, who is a lecturer and a senior research fellow at Leiden University. He is a historian of global late antiquity and early Middle Ages, with a focus on Central and West Asia from 500 to 700 CE. His research focuses on the Sasanian and early Islamic economy of the Near East. To learn more about Dr. Reza Khani and his extensive research, you can visit his academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. On his homepage, you'll find tons of articles and six books about the fascinating history of the Sasanians and much more about that period of world history. So stay with me as Dr. Reza Khani and I peel the history behind this news. Dr. Azakhani, it is a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Let's start our conversation with some fundamentals here because I think they're very important to our audience. 
We often hear the terms Persian and Iranian used interchangeably. So are they interchangeable? Um, well, in some senses, yes, and in some senses, no. Mm -hmm. um, generally, Persian would refer to something that you would put under the umbrella of Iranian, but from a certain, let's say, modern point of view. Um, historically, though, the two terms have been used as a sort of equivalent for each other, but as ex exonyms and endonyms. So you would see, for example, all obviously all Greco-Roman sources refer to the people of this area as uh, Persians, um, you know, the various versions of the word in Greek uh, and Latin. Um, in Arabic sources, the word force as the plural of farce is mm -hmm. used. Uh, and in Chinese sources, uh, the word puso, which is coming from Persian again, is used to refer to this uh, to the people. But then internally, the word that is used as a collective is often something that comes from a root of air, the ancient um, uh, Indo-Iranian or Indo-Iranian word of air, and its derivatives, of which Iran is a plural, really. So Iran is Iran, is from Middle Persian Iran, which means the air people, the airs, really. So internally, we don't have the use of the word, any derivative of the word Persian or Pars, really as a marker of the entirety. Uh, but uh, it is uh, used in an external sense, and it is quite widespread. Um, I give you a quick example of it. Uh, there is a section in Ibn Nadim, the early, uh, so sort of the early Islamic, 10th century Islamic bibliographer, in which he's talking about various languages of what he calls the people of force, meaning everything. And he mentions the language of Pahlav and the language of Dari. And then under that force, he again says force. And here he specifies that he means the language or the dialect of the province of Fars to the south of Iran and so on and so forth. So this Persian externally does have a use as a collective. It is a bit comparable, let's say, to um, the way Germans use the word Deutsch in German to describe themselves. But externally, obviously, the words derived from certain tribes of Germans, which is Germanii or Almanii in, in French and a lot of other languages is used for that. So it's a, it's a matter of exonyms and endonyms. So since you use Germany as an uh, example, Dr. Razakhani, would the term Persia be comparable to Prussia in Germany as in a certain, a certain ethnicity or people within a specific geography? Yes, in a sense, except nobody calls Germans Prussians. That's why they the don't anymore, Germany. but they did a century and a half ago, right? The Prussian yeah, well, Empire. But that was a specific part of Germany. See, as a collective, yeah. you have the word German from Germany, from a tribe of ancient Germans who were in touch with the Romans, or you have the word Aleman, uh, the French, the, the French word used Alman, which comes from the Alemanni, which are the southwestern tribe of the Germans that the French uh, bordered. So, in a, probably a better example is um, the Greek word uh, for Greece, which is uh, you know comes from the root of Elas uh, and Eleni, which mm -hmm. means Greeks in Greek. 
uh, that's where the word Hellenistic comes from. But of course, externally, externally, Greek, uh, Greece is using the West for Magna Graecia, and in the East, we word, use words uh, derived from Ionia, so Yunnan, Yunnan, Stan. These words, which come from Ionia, so it's a matter of external and internal. Specifically speaking, Persia is a section in the south of Iran, and Persian is one of the Iranian languages, which we can then talk about. Um, so did the term Persia stuck after the first Persian empire that was founded by Cyrus the Great? Is that how that happened? Um, because he was, was of Persian tribe. He Well, the, the, him being of a Persian tribe, yes, generally. The thing is, he's at, they are referred to as the kings of the Persians. Yeah. In Greek yeah. They are not necessarily referred to as the king of Persia. The king of referred to as the king of the Persians, and they themselves. So, for example, mm. Darius says, "I am Darius, da 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 da, a Persian." Right. So he describes this as an ethnonym more than as a an actual place. But then the area that these Persians live in, or Persians control often, then gets to be called Persia by extension from Persian. But the original name is actually, it's, it's an ethnonym, it's referring to the people, yeah. not a geography. So is the term Iran broader than the term Persia? The term Iran in a sense is broader, yes, in mm -hmm. a sense is describing a broader geography but then you know uh, things always get thorny because then <laughs> we have this other terminology that we are really now in the rise in we, we really are sort of in a period of its growth is the persianate world which is what we are using for really the timurid and post-timurid uh, Central and West Asia. And this Persianate world then includes the world of Mughal India, Safavid yeah. Iran, and Ottoman uh, Turkey and Eastern Europe. So then in a sense, you have, you have the use of a Persia-derived word for a wider thing. But generally, we should, we should really discuss this issue of the origins of the study of ancient Iran and where we get to this idea of what is Iranian and the Iranian family of languages and the problem that we are applying a lot of this knowledge that we have from modern scholarship to our historical understanding. As a historian, I try to avoid that. Um, people 2,000 years ago weren't necessarily aware of the fact that Sogdian and Scythian are from the same family of languages as Persian is. They would understand that Persian and Parthian are mutually understandable. But, you know, people weren't philologists back then. They yeah, yeah. Know that these are the family of languages. But we do know this. And then we tend to apply these bigger terms taken from our modern knowledge back into history. So really the answer to the question is factually, yes. Persia, Persian is a subset of Iran, Iran. Mm-hmm. But whether historically it was really so relevant, divided, divided, relevant, people even cared about it that much, is a matter of debate. Okay, I'm glad you you gave the example of Scythians. Uh, I have read about this, and I just want to make sure I understand this correctly. So, 
indulge me in this, please. I've read that Scythians, who at one point covered uh, much of what is modern Ukraine now, were Iranian or Iranic. Or, yeah. Is that correct? In the sense that they spoke an Iranic language, an Iranian language, yes. In that sense. And they, their descendants still live in that area, and they still speak an Iranian language. So, yes. But at that time, the Iranians that lived in the Iranian plateau had, going back to what you were saying, historical, they they shared no relevance or kinship with those that live in all the way north of the Baltic Sea. I'm sorry, the, the, the Black Sea. The Black right? Sea. No, not anything that they were probably aware of. Yeah. But they, one might have not been that strangers to them. But no, no, nobody would be sitting in, I don't know, uh, Pasarga, Pasarga Day in Pers Persia and claim that the king of the Sakas. And by the way, those are only one tribe of the Sakas who are in the northern Black Sea. You have to notice that Sakas are a lot more widespread than. Yeah, Black yeah, I've seen it on a map. Yeah, very widespread. Um, um, it it's doesn't mean no. They didn't necessarily feel a kinship. It's again our modern derivation that we know. I see. They spoke an Iranian language. Fast forward to modern times. Uh, let me ask it this way: My parents were born in Tabriz, Azerbaijan. Um, yeah. um, they speak Azeri Turkish, and they're Iranian. Well, Iranian American now. So, is my background Persian or Iranian? Hmm, very good question. Um, I could even I ask this if I may just ask another one. Masa Amini, who was murdered in September, was Kurdish. So was she Persian or was she Iranian? See, we go back to the original question. Yeah. Depends on what you want to identify yourself as now, right? Um, it is, um, again, again, let's bring the German um question okay mm -hmm. there is there is this issue up to 1925-6 the land is called internationally is called persia right 1926 so, 26 right yes. so less than a hundred years ago if you stop somebody in the street and said what is this thing they would have called it if they weren't from that land they would have called it persia right mm -hmm. so in a sense it is like Germans, what happened in 1926, Reza Shah told the rest of the world, hey, we don't call this land Persia, we call it Iran. So you guys call it Iran as well, right? And, and Reza Shah was the founder of the last Iranian dynasty. Last Iranian yes. uh, monarchical dynasty. So yes. uh, the, the Pahlavi dynasty, right? So he comes and says that you have to use our native term for the country. Right. It would be a bit like Germans coming and saying, hey, you have to call our country Deutschland. You should stop using Allemand and uh, Tedesco and German, all of these words <laughs> that you other people Interesting. use and call our country the way we call them. Right. Actually, but, Erdogan is doing that now. He's telling the world to call Turkey, Turkey. Turkey, Turkey. But th yeah. that's actually that's actually a different. The reason I brought I still like the German idea uh -huh. is because specifically speaking, Germans were a tribe of the Deutsch people. Right, the Deutsch oh, people. Oh, I see. Which is different than the Turkey example. I yeah. guess. Yes, the yes, Deutsch yes, people, yes. I follow. Deutsch people. Deutsch is this greater unit. This this is the same word as Teutons. You know, the Teutonic people. Yes. We call. Yes. So, these Teutonic people included Germans, right? Now, the question would be in that sense then. 
would somebody who is a Saxon, well, you know, in Germany today, that difference doesn't exist, but imagine it exists. Imagine the idea of Saxons and the Mecklenburgers and the Thuringia and the Bavarians and all of these people actually existed. Yeah, yeah. So would you call a Bavarian or a Saxon or a Thuringia a German or are they Deutsch? Because they are, don't belong to the tribe of Germanii, they belong to the nation of Teutonic people. But Interesting. It, 100 years ago, the Kurds of Iran were called Persian Kurds. The Turkish speakers of Iran were called Persian Turks to distinguish them from Ottoman Turks, yeah. from Ottoman Kurds, right? The Baluches yeah. were called Persian Baluch. And this sticks in a sense. Right now, I would say you are an Iranian Turk. You are an Iranian Azeri to distinguish you from a Republic of Azerbaijan Azeri. Of course, right? yeah. Right. And it becomes interesting for me because my own um, stepfather, not my biological father, but the person I grew up with and uh, consider my father, he, his family were from Ganja in the Republic of Azerbaijan. They moved to Iran and then they, he was actually born in Burujer, which is in Luristan, which is a very nicely mixed background yeah. uh, in that sense. What, you know, in, in this, I would say, I would say his family, part of them were actually Republic of Azerbaijan Azeri, but he was Iranian Azeri, right? Like yeah. this, I, this yeah. is how you would say, I would say you are an Iranian Azeri, but if somebody calls you Persian Azeri, now it is becoming more and more as if this, I have argued this before. I have written an uh, article called Persocentrism and the Iranian National Identity. Of this Persocentrism? Okay. Persocentrism and the Iranian National Identity. It's online. Okay. Um, it's the idea. But, but, but this seems to then suggest now, if you say Persian Kurd, is as if you are suggesting that there is this um, Persian overlordship, or at least being understood. My argument in that thing was there is no Persian ethnicity. Nobody calls themselves in Iran Persian, right? There are people who speak Persian and are from Isfahan. There's yeah. people who speak Persian and are from Tehran. There are people who speak Persian and are from Kerman. But nobody calls themselves Persian. Like That's true. <laughs> this is not what they say, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so this idea of the there is no central majority. That's why I'm against the term minority, use of, use of the word minority, because who is the majority? It's assuming that there is a majority. Yeah. There is no majority, right? Majority, and it becomes often linguistic. That's the problem, that we take language as the only marker of identity, and we ignore the fact that, well, after all, I, as a Tehrani, have a lot more to share with the, with the Mazandaranis in every sense of the word, right? In, in, in what I eat, in how I behave, in even the dialect I speak, and that, 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 that. I have a lot to share with the Mazandaranis. Why am I necessarily connected to the Kermani people, right? Yeah. Because we speak the same language? No, not necessarily. Um, you know, we could have a whole podcast and just talk about that, maybe more than one. <laughs> you teach courses on this. Um, yeah. Uh, we talked about Iran, uh, Iranians, and Persians. I would be committing podcasting malpractice if I didn't ask you about the Persian New Year that's just coming up in a few days. Yeah. Uh, uh, so uh, 
As a point of interest, first, what year is it? That itself is a point of contention sometimes. It brings up a lot of interesting stuff. And two, uh, when did it start, the Persian New Year, the celebration? Oh, see, there I would say don't call it the Persian New Year. Okay, go ahead. I would say the Iranian New Year. Because, interesting. Because there, if in the modern sense, we're considering Iran this wider terminology, uh -huh. That doesn't have to do with the country necessarily, but rather with the entire cultural extent. You know, the celebration is actually celebrated in many parts of the world outside the borders of Iran. And it certainly is not Persian in the sense of it has never been connected necessarily to the Persian rituals in the sense of uh, the specific southern Persia, I mean, in the sense of Fars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the province. The yeah. doing are very widespread. Um, it's the year 1402, based on the Hijra calendar. The Islamic calendar. The Islamic calendar. I don't have a problem with it, because in general, the way we counted years was based on the years of the rule of the kings, right? So yeah. before Islam, you don't really have a continuous calendar. You have some. You have the year 32 of Khosrow II. Right, that's how things are counted. The, a, a bit like the Chinese, and then it would start again with the next monarch. Exactly, and the last year of this monarch would be the first year of that monarch. The Chinese have the same thing; they have era, uh, era. So it's year three of the era of um, um, Gaozang of the uh, Tang Empire. That's how they counted this. There was a calendar. There was an ancient calendar was used, but you would be surprised; it was the Seleucid calendar. It was a calendar that was established by the Seleucus I, the Diadochoi um, sort of ruler that replaced Alexander in Iran. The Greek so rulers. They, yeah, they do, they use that for certain type of timekeeping. But the regular daily calendar was based on the king's thing. There is another one based on a king's rule, and that's the Yazdgerdi calendar, which essentially is 10 years behind the Hijri, um, uh, the solar Hijri calendar. So in Yazgirdi calendar, it would be 1392 now. Uh, but I just, I'm just okay with the Iranian uh, calendar because it is, it goes to the medieval period. It is, it is a solar calendar. And well, okay, yeah, the beginning of it starts with uh, the Hijra of Muhammad, which Iran majority of Iranians are Muslim. So why not? I, do, I don't see a problem. You mentioned solar. Why is it that the Iranian calendar is on a solar system? And when you look around that region, you know, to the east and west, most other calendars are based on a lunar system. It's a really good question about why, because the Chinese use lunar, the Jews use lunar, and the Arabs, the Arabs use lunar as well. I don't really know. In the ancient period, both were used simultaneously for different mm -hmm. purposes. Uh, solar calendar is obviously coming from Babylonia, ancient Babylonia. Okay. They used this. So the whole setting of the solar calendar is really an ancient Babylonian thing. And it was always used. Uh, I don't really have a very good reason. What we know as the Zoroastrian calendar uh, how ancient it is and when exactly it came up, they came up with it. Uh, I don't really have a very clear opinion on that, but that's also solar. But lunar was used simultaneously. So lunar calendar wasn't unknown. 
The way we have it now, which is happening really in the 11th, 12th century, is for the organization of agriculture and for uh, tax purposes. It's uh, because it is a because the you know the biggest thing about the area that Iran and the area around it is is the agriculture and the control of water and you know growing of things. You mean and, when you say the way we have it now, you mean the solar system? The solar system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So the solar system is a lot more uh, useful for agricultural activity. Um, in at least in the 10th, 11th, 12th century, when they're setting it up, that's mostly the reason. Uh, but I really don't know why necessarily lunars didn't take on as much. For most of Iranian history, after Islam, it did. After all, yeah, yeah, until 1906, that's what we were using anyway. Uh, so we reintroduced it. But just yeah. solar calendar has a longer history within the Iranian world. Uh, we'll be back after a short break to talk about a second Persian empire, one that changed world history in a significant and lasting way. We'll be right back. In the last two years, I've enjoyed fascinating conversations with the scholars of Iran about the 1953 CIA coup, about the Iranian hostage crisis and Iran's Islamic constitution. How was it written and who wrote it? About the Iranians of the 1979 revolution, including women about the hijab, and where did it come from anyway, about Iranians' women's rights, marriage, sex, and abortion, about Iran and America's failed diplomacy of 40-plus years, about a missed moment in 2003 when Iran was willing to negotiate about everything with the U.S., and about Shiism, which is a relatively new national religion in Iran, and about Ayatollahs. What is an Ayatollah? The links for these conversations are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Reza Khani. Dr. Reza Khani, I'm going to dive into this segment by asking you this. What is Eran Shah? Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes. So what is that term? Well, well Eran Shah specifically is the term that late Sasanian and early Islamic sources talking about late Sasanian period in Middle Persian, in, in the language of the Sasanians, used to describe the empire. So, you know, it's made up of the word Iran, which is, as I said, is the plural of air, and Shah here, which Persian speaker might, might recognize that the modern term for a city, but it really means a domain. It's actually it actually comes from the same root that the word shah comes from. So it's the domain, it's uh -huh. the expanse. So it's expanse or the domain of the people of air. The term gets used in the late Sasanian and early Islamic period to describe the um, sort of the world of the Sasanian Empire. There is a lot of um, detail and there's a lot of discussion that we haven't settled yet about how this term was understood and how it was understood from, you know, mm, transposing mythological geography and physical geography of the land, uh, which requires a whole lot of explanation. Uh, but generally, that's it. We could, in a, for lack of a better term, we could say that Iran Shahr, at least in the late antique early Islamic period, equals the Sasanian territories. Was there a reason that the term Eran Shah 
was used in the Sasanian era versus um, prior empires such as the Achaemenid Persian Empire. Mm. What I'm trying to get at, let me just ask it this way. Did the concept of Iran, is that something that the Sasanian Empire was promoting or establishing versus the prior large Persian Empire, the Achaemenid Empire? Or is, is am I reading too much into this, Dr. Razakhani? No, you're not. Uh, you are you are putting your finger rather on a very, very thorny issue. And this <laughs> issue of this issue of terminology and labels, which we often take very for granted. Um, well, you have to notice, Iran Shah is not even used during the Sasanian period that um, extensively, at least oh. in the first centuries. You have to notice that the first rulers of this land, Sasanian rulers of this land, they are calling themselves Shahanshah Iran and then Shahanshah Iran U and Iran. And it means the king of kings of the Iran, however you want to see that. You want to see that as a indicative of land or Iran in the sense of people of air, whatever that means, which we should get into when we get to Zoroastrianism. And what is not Iran, what is not air or what is not Iran. So early on, on the coins of Ardashir I, um, Shapur I, is king of kings of Iran. Then on the inscription of Shapur I, and then on the coins of his son, Hormuz I, the word king of kings of Iran and non-Iran is added. And then we start pro uh, progressing, and then, you know, that falls out. And that probably has something to do with the changing understanding of geography and the population. So again, I have certain ideas about it, and my ideas are my own. There is no necessarily grand agreement on this. So even the word Iran Shah, you could say, is a mid to late Sasanian invention. And we really have it from the Pahlavi documents that occur in the early Islamic period, in a sense. So that is that is important. Why didn't the Achaemenids have something like this? Or the Parthians, yeah. or the Arsacids have this? Um, I would imagine... Um, there's, again, not, not a good answer to this, but I think it has to do with an understanding of your own legitimacy within not only territorial and geographical boundaries, but within a sort of a cosmic understanding. And I would say the later Sasanians are slowly moving towards understanding their territory, their area that they actually rule in physical terms and trying to define it in physical terms, uh, rather than thinking of it as a sort of a cosmic name uh, or a name that is setting out, uh, you know, us versus them. So more, um, more a sort of inclusive, um, in more inclusive and exclusive, more trying to define who is us and who is not us. In a sense. Okay. And then it becomes a territory. It really becomes a, again, becomes a territory the way Sasanians recognize. In the last segment, we, we talked about, uh, I think we mentioned this, that Sasanians, the family, the royal family itself was Persian, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So does that make Sasanians, and you and I touched on this during the break, uh, Dr. Rezakhani, does that make the Sasanians the second Persian Empire, the first being the one that was founded by Cyrus the Great and ultimately uh, defeated by Alexander the Great? 
specifically why the if you want to be nitty gritty and you know be get to the um, actual exact point yes they both came from the province of persia they okay. came both from the province of fars from the province of persis during the um arsacid and seleucid period so in that sense yes they are both coming from the same province whether they are sharing the same ethnicity i would step back from defining that this term of second persian empire for sasanians is a largely 19th century british uh, creation and that comes from this grand book that was written or a series of books that was written uh, about the ancient world uh, and the term second persian empire came uh, out largely in opposition to the arsacid empire which which was called the parthian empire because the arsacid family came from parthia which is in northeastern part of the land so it is in the province it is in modern province of Khorasan and on the borderland of Afghanistan Turkmenistan so was the Parthian empire an Iranian empire yes because in the in a sense they have all the characteristics that we want to call a Parthian an Iranian empire they speak an Iranian language if we go against the 19th century thing they are an Iranian people they were even accused whether correctly or not is a matter of the our associate um, history is quite a uh, problematic thing. They were even accused of being anti-Hellenistic, being the Iranians who are pushing out the Hellens. So I've read that, in, yeah. In this, in this in this fight, which I disagree, by the way, I mm-hmm. think I think Hellenism is not a foreign element in Iranian history. It becomes a foreign element because of again 19th century Europeans defining Greeks as their ancestors and. Owning, I always use this joke. My uncle actually is called Plato Aflatun, and I went to school. Oh, what a great so name! Was, yeah, and and my best friend and in school was called Arastu Aristotle. So you just find an English person whose uncle is called Plato and who went to school with an Aristotle. The Greek culture <laughs> is as much as much sort of part of this culture as it is. But again, in 19th century Greece becomes the chosen ancestor of the European colonialized mind thing, uh, mindset and then it becomes again so Parthians even in, even in the 19th century history writing become the great opponents of the Greeks so yes Parthians are certainly Iranian so it's understood that Achaemenids Persian Achaemenids Parthian or Sassids and Persians uh, Sasanians are these grand pre-Islamic um, dynasties of Iran. So the, the second Persian Empire is Persian as opposed to the Parthians, not Persian as opposed to Iranians, and that the rest weren't Iranians. I Parthians see. are Iranians. That's a good way. That's a good way of uh, uh, drawing a contrast for me to understand. Um, so we're talking about Sasanians in this segment. How important was this empire in its own time? Um, in its own time, very. In its own time, I would say in, of course, you are talking about 430 years of history. So, you know, it's very hard to define something that has lasted that long. Imagine we're talking about something that is lasting from almost um, Queen Elizabeth I to now. You know, this this is is, is a rather daunting um, sort of stretch of time. They are, however, quite important. At no point in their history, they lose their... Um, importance in Western Central Asia 
to and get reduced to something insignificant. Of course, they fluctuate. Early on in the third century, they have a growth uh, burst, which takes them from really what is today Afghanistan all the way to what is today uh, borders of today Syria, which becomes more or less their core territory. So that Iran Shah really starts defining slowly this territory from Afghanistan to the borders of Syria. Um, they do in this uh, in the late fifth century they lose the eastern part of their territories to this new. Uh, Central Asian power of the Heftalites, but that doesn't really last that long. They do sort of recover part of it in the 6th century, and then in the 7th century, under the rule of what I consider their greatest emperor, uh, Khosrow II, they conquered all of Syria, Palestine, Anatolia, and Egypt, uh, and they become the most important really power for a short period of time, and I think I don't think the period is really that short, because I think there is a continuity to it that we don't consider. But anyway, they are never an insignificant empire. They are economically uh, quite important. Um, they're, um, How they're, so? Uh, well, they are both in production economy. Um, Sasanians generally invested the, the, both the central empire um, through direct investment and also through various um, administrative and taxation uh, reforms uh, really encourages um, settlements, uh, development of land, mining, um, introduction of new crops, which are cash crops often. Uh, and then um, there's a whole lot of trading, encouragement of trade. So we have that, for example, you know, um, the hinterland of Baghdad, as it's called by one of the archaeologists, the northern parts of Mesopotamia, the intensity of settlement in the late Sasanian period is not met until the modern times. So oh, wow. in, in the 6th and 7th century, the upper part of Mesopotamia is the most intense settlement that it has had in its history until modern times. And for example, in the Indian Ocean trade, um, it seems that the, you know, Persian traders, whatever, the traders that are subject to the Sasanians are controlling really all of the port trade on the western coast of India, and they are the ones who are the main conduits for transfer of goods that comes from East Asia to uh, west, western part of the Indian Ocean. They're among the, um, they are the most important players in the system. So um, um, economically, socially, politically, and militarily, they are quite important. About um, their soft power, you know how the United States has soft power, and China is trying to develop a soft power. In imperial sense, that's really hard to say, you know, because in in empires don't have clear boundaries the way we think of countries, right? Yeah. So having influence, having soft power influence, is is a hard thing to really say uh, how far it expands. We know that this world has a continuous or lasting effect in many senses. Many of the things that we recognize, in a, let's, let's say this, many of the things that we recognize in the medieval and modern period as Iranian is, are really established in the Sasanian period, right? So anything from that Nowruz question that you asked and mm. the traditions associated with it, um, to, I don't know, for me, I, I like coins. So for me, one of the most interesting things 
is that, you know, still in the Middle East, you have two sorts of main names for coins, for money. One of them is dinar, which comes from Latin denarius, and one, is, one of them is dirham, which comes from Sasanian money, dirham. Yes, originally come from Greek drachma, which was the cu currency of uh, Athens, and that's how it came. But it spreads because of the Sasanians. The word dirham spreads because of Sasanians. And really, the Sasanian coinage is the basis of Islamic silver coinage all through the Middle Ages. Recently, oh, wow. Yeah, they recently found Sasanian coins in Britain, a couple of them in near Manchester in Britain. They were Sasanian coins. <laughs> so like this, this entire thing. So they are very influential in many senses of the word. Um, uh, their, their soft power is lasting rather than contemporaneously. We could study how far and whether they actually had any plans. Yes, in some senses, you could say, for example, later Sasanian emperors seem to be very much trying to extend their soft power by supporting certain communities of Eastern Christians in Syria to trying to buy, for example, the Eastern Syriac uh, church's um, sort of um, um, support against the Byzantines, right? How far that goes, I don't know. Uh, but how, what, is that really, can you really call that a soft power? Because it is within military sense. Yeah. Uh, we have several references to Jewish populations being naturally sort of, for various reasons, um, looking towards the Sasanian Empire. Uh, other than the fact that the biggest part of the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, is really written under the Sasanian control in Mesopotamia, you know, you have references to various Jewish uh, characters uh, who end up being pro-Sasanians. So, you know, but it's, it's really hard to say what the soft power for an empire. Yeah. yeah. In uh, a sense, an empire is all soft power. An empire is all soft power. That's that's very interesting. We'll be back after a short break to talk about the fall of the Sasanian Empire and the rise of Islam. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Dr. Razakhani, in the last decades of the Sasanian Empire, the empire launched a war against the Byzantine Empire. It was not their first war. The Byzantine Empire is the Eastern Roman Empire. Their war lasted 25 years. Two superpowers at the time, I think there were three superpowers. One was the Byzantine Empire, the Sasanian Empire, and the Tang Dynasty, the Chinese Empire. So two superpowers are at war for a quarter century. How devastating was this? Um, devastating in a sense, a lot, but actually not much for Sasanians. Sasanians it wasn't. Are, no, Sasanians are coming out with 
pretty flying colors out of this thing. It is initially very disastrous for the Byzantines because they lose all of their eastern territories. So, you know, imagine, say, let's say the height of the war to 220, I mean 620. In 620s, uh, the Byzantines are in control of um, Constantinople, Balkans, and what is now Greece, uh, parts of southern Italy, and parts of uh, northern Africa, and maybe a couple of cities on the Iberian Peninsula. They have lost Egypt, they have lost Palestine, they have lost um, Syria, and they have lost Anatolia. Um, so, wow. Yeah, so yeah, the Sasanians for a good say 17, 18 years, I would say close to 20 years, are actually controlling all of this area. And um, it does take a lot of resources, obviously. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually right now in the process of completing a paper exactly about this war. Uh, and it, it has taken Sasanians 100 years of preparation. It has taken Sasanians 100 years of um, completely changing the face of their empire economically to be able to achieve this. But they do achieve it. And what really happens is that they don't lose the war. They lose their emperor. They lose Khosrow II. What happens is that Khosrow II is, becomes, you know, this... Who's your favorite? Who's my favorite emperor? Okay. <laughs> because I think I think he's the only one who is thinking in a big strategic terms. Okay. Um, he get he's removed because uh, you know he's no more he's he's not popular anymore. And I think it also has something to do with Heracles, the Byzantine emperor, actually finding other ways. Talk about soft power. He finds a soft power way of removing Khosrow from the throne. But on the other I hand, I thought his son killed him. Well, the son, no, the son doesn't kill, kill him. Okay, the story is that he gets removed via a palace coup. So in 628, on the 9th of February of 628, he's actually removed from the throne the, via a palace coup. He's put under custody. Then there is a, what you can just call a, a court case raised against him. Uh, we have the terms of this court case. It's recorded in later histories. Wow. He answers this, defends himself. He defends himself point by point. Then there is a judgment that basically dismisses his um, points and condemns him to death. And he's actually killed by one of the courtiers, in fact, by, by a person who actually you know, does the execution. Dr. Rizal, I have to interrupt you here because I'm not following this story i'm just going about what you said you said for 17 to 18 years the war is going well for the yeah. sasanian empire they, they've taken but based on what you're saying almost like i don't know two-thirds of the byzantine empire yeah. so shouldn't hosro ii be admired and loved by everyone they call him hosro ii the victor i think yeah hosro piruz i think victorious there you go so why have a coup He's kicking butt here. Um, well, that's a good question. And if I could answer that, my paper would be finished. And a lot of people <laughs> would actually have... There you go. Maybe you present your paper right here. Yeah. There is an entire... There is an entire... Thing. It's too much detail to go through. Um, uh, if I... I to the simple answer is I don't know why they remove him. They just remove him. It's just that there is a coup against him. And the coup is somehow instigated by... 
a rebellious general who seems to have had some sort of an encouragement or even support and promise from Heraclius, the, the Byzantine emperor, to do this. And then Khosrow's son, as you said, who is unhappy and who is the beneficiary of this thing, he does become emperor after the death of his dad. But uh, it's uh, his son with his Roman wife, not well, with we, his we Armenian wife. Roman wife. We oh, don't you really know. We don't, don't. See, that story is not mentioned contemporaneously. That story of him being the son of a Roman uh, wife is not interesting. Um, um, uh, I actually have an article about this. If anybody wants to read, it's in the uh, it's in the in, uh, British Journal History Today. What I'm going to do, I'm actually going to get the link for that article yeah, from you and add it into the caption, the detailed caption of this episode. Yeah. Uh, but now I'm all flummoxed because you're turning this story around on me. I thought I was gonna I was I was going to offend you and say your favorite emperor Khosrow II was actually the megalomaniac who took Iran the Iran Empire through twenty five years of war the Byzantine Empire sued for peace two or three times I think and he refused and in so doing drained the entire Iranian economy by Iran I mean the Empire of Iran and that opened the way for Arabs to conquer Iran. And you're, you're saying, you're shaking your head, and you're saying, no, that's wrong. Because this happens very quickly, uh, just, I don't know, about a decade or so after, or maybe less than that, the the Sasanian-Byzantine war, colossal war ends, the empire falls to the Arabs. I don't have the exact years in mind, uh, but you're shaking your head in, in affirmation that sort of the sequence of events yeah. are, okay. I'm trying to figure out how this happens. You go from an empire to losing to Arabs. See, because you don't. This is the thing. Because you I don't? Mean, is that what you said? I told you. I to, see, this is my research. And I told you I'm a revisionist. Um, God, how do I say this in a short? It is, a, it, it is something that however I say it, unless I can actually spend hours explaining it or <laughs> no, reading it oh boy i wouldn't be able to i wouldn't be able to show you what it is the issue is we essentially see these things as separate events we yeah. think of the war of closer the second with byzantium then the activities of muhammad the prophet of the islam at the period and the conquest period as different events. And we essentially think of Arabs as outsiders to both of these superpowers, as you call them, who then take advantage of the weaknesses of both empires and conquer. That's right? my view. Yeah, that's what I share with you. Yeah, yeah, okay. So there is a saying, if something is too improbable to be, it probably is. Yeah, that's you know, my point. I mean, how does that happen? It's so improbable. Yeah, because if the if the Muslims had come out of you know the way we imagine them galloping on their horses and camels outside from outside Arabia, and had come and conquered two empires in ruins, they would have been in ruins themselves. 
So how would you then make sense of the fact that you almost immediately enter a period of um, uh, economic, cultural, every sense expansion? That they are not receiving, they are not conquering cities that don't have economic abilities. They are not getting down. All the tales that we get from the early Islamic conquest is each one of these cities are full of treasures. It's full of money. Money constantly comes to Arabs and they send it to Medina and they can't believe it. These cities, and then they enter these cities and these cities are completely built up. We have them archaeologically, right? The level of occupation in uh, late Sasanian, late Byzantine, early Islamic period is unprecedented. These are big, prosperous cities that fall into the hands of these Muslims. They are not cities ravaged and destroyed by war for a 25-year war. So it's amazing. This is completely counter to what I suggested yeah. and what I have read. And yeah, to, to my credit, I'm not making that up. This is I've read this in different. Of uh, course, this is yeah. this, but this is the, this is a narrative I I mentioned at the beginning of my uh, article and the book that I'm writing about this that comes from again a modern concern that thinks of the result of things, not of the historical processes themselves. Right in this, the beginning of Islam in these lands is seen as an external event coming to these lands, and you know you shouldn't be able to conquer empires because we are because we are equating empires with countries. So this is a Persian land, and that is the Roman land that falls to these foreign Arabs, right? Yeah, foreign yeah. Muslims who then force everybody to convert to Islam. Yeah. Or, or That's the story, if, right? Or if you are a Muslim, you know, these systems are so corrupt and have so much pissed off their own people that people welcome Islam with open arms. Neither of these are true. Nobody welcomed Islam with their open arms. And <laughs> Muslims didn't really force. They couldn't force. How many people could be in Arabia that could force the entire population of the centers of civilization at that time? Of the, uh, yeah. At that time. Syria, Mesopotamia, these are extremely complicated, sophisticated societies with high population, highly educated, highly urbanized um, um, populations in that region. How could these people come from outside and they just conquer them? If they are completely unknown and outsiders, how much war could be? And if the war was that devastating, that was destroying these cities, that these cities could be taken by a couple of people from the middle of the desert, then how did they arrive there and it was all fine? How did they how run did the they... administration and bureaucracy if it was devastated, right? That's the, the point you're making. That, the first thing that Omar does when he enters this area... Omar is, being the head of the, uh, the Muslim the second, forces. Being the second Muslim caliph and the guy under whom most of the Futuhad, most of the conquests are supposed to have happened. The first thing it does is to establish a diwan to, to manage all the money that is coming in. And when you read early on, there's all the money that is coming in. This money is there. Nobody is saying that the Sasanian um, treasury is dilapidated because of the wars. This is, these things don't exist in actual evidence. These are all... So the, 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 the narrative that we often have yeah, who come up with who came up with this narrative then? Ah, uh, Abdul Hussein Zarin Kub and people like him. I don't and know who I that had, gentleman is. <laughs> ah, see, there you go. I had I had a I had a conversation with 
um, one of the um, a, a, a BBC journalist who does a um, once a year sort of a no ruse podcast who's mm-hmm. a friend of mine about the book of this gentleman Abdullah Senzanik, one of the most influential historians of Iran in the past hundred days. It's not obviously he didn't create it. It comes out of this entire last 150 years of study of ancient Iran. So that's a totally different podcast that I'm totally go- willing to go through with you. Mm-hmm. But it's a narrative of decline. The only way these things could have happened is because there was a decline, right? We still have books written in the last 10 years who try to make sense of the decline. The problem is when you go there, there is no decline. You don't actually see the decline. You're supposed to have ruined cities. Dilapidated yeah, yeah, I've actually read about those ruined cities. Yeah, but which ruined cities? Like, they are not there. They are, if you go and actually dig, there are no ruined cities. They're fine. You know, Tessifon is ruined, the capital. But yeah. 100, 200 years later, in the process of building of Baghdad, Tessifon is abandoned in the early Islamic period for various reasons. And then the material from Tessifon gets used to building of Baghdad. Nobody goes and destroys these things, right? It's not really, they are not ruined. Nobody, Romans never, see, Heraclius never comes and conquers his territories back or conquers anything of the Sasanians. There is a war up in near Nineveh. There he defeats a Sasanian contingent, hears of the coup against Fosro II, and then goes back to Constantinople. And then there are a series of negotiations with Khosrow's son, Shiroye, and Khosrow's grandson, Ardashir III, and then Khosrow's daughter, Buran, during which cities are returned, or sometimes not returned, the original um, cross that is taken by Khosrow from Jerusalem is returned. The and Holy Cross. We, yeah, we reach, the, we reach a period, a, a state of sort of balance between the two empires, before you know the Islamic Empire rises and takes over this territory, but there is no, there is no proper you know destruction. The thing with it's just not there. It's just there is. This no- is fascinating. This is so. First of all, I appreciate it, but this is so counter to all the uh, history that I have read uh, or watched. Uh, um, yeah. And I'm just, I'm just going to make an executive decision right now. Um, um, not to ask any more questions on this because we'll be talking about this fascinating topic for another. Um, to be quite honest, hour. I could an hour and a half of time. So no, I, I could too. So I, I, I love it. Minutes more. You know what the answer is? What's what's the answer? Arabs are not in the middle of the desert. Local people of southern Mesopotamia and southern Syria are Arabs too. They are Christian. Arab tribes and city-dwelling population between the Sasanians and the Byzantines. Byzantines and Sasanians... Are you talking about the two buffer states? Buffer states and everything in between. And these people are the people who are actually fighting for the Sasanians. Right? So when the Sasanian emperor dies, they become autocephalous. And they start conquering these areas on their own behalf. The areas that they have conquered on behalf of the Sasanians, they just start possessing them. Now they need an authority. The Sasanians are gone. The Byzantines are absolutely destroyed. Who do they go to? The nascent empire, the nascent kingdom in Medina, who also speaks Arabic. So what is what is the conquests have already happened? There are no conquests. Gadesia, the biggest thing of between Sasanians and uh, Muslims, it probably is something like even based on numbers that the 
books came, is about 250 Muslim troops versus 500 Sasanian troops. It's a small battle. The issue is all of these Muslim sources are written 300 years later. So they are reflecting on these grand events because these are histories of salvation. Because they are trying to describe the glory of the past, which kind is of like how the Greeks did about the Persian, right? These exactly. these are these but, are politically motivated uh, historiography. But, but okay, Arabs are not from the desert. We think of Arabs from the desert. There are Arabs in the desert as well, but the vast majority of the Arabs are just living there. They're there. They are from there. Hira is an Arab kingdom. Palestine has an, has two Arabic kingdoms. They're there. They're not coming from anywhere else. They're part of these empires. So they see the empires falling apart. They're like, okay, fine. Your emperor is dead and your emperor, your emperor is back in Constantinople and cannot make it further south in Edessa. Fine. So your, 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 your paper that you're working on right now details all of this. One aspect of it. I have written five papers so far about this. Um, let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. Reza Khani as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Dr. Reza Khani, after the fall of the Sasanian Empire, did the Sasanian royal family uh, escape to China, to the Tang dynasty? And I asked this question because I've read several different accounts, almost romantic, sentimentally like accounts of how the, uh, the heirs to the throne, if you will, for two or perhaps three generations were still trying to reconquer the um, Sasanian Empire. And uh, I've seen this online there's actually uh, tombs of Sasanian royal family in China today. Yeah. So is is there a story here? Is that... Well, there's a story there, but in simple terms, yes. Um, after the death of the last official Sasanian emperor, Yazgir III, mm. it seems that his two sons, particularly his elder son, Peroz, um, initially in Sistan in East Iran, and then later in northern Afghanistan, the area around Balkh today, um, rule under a Chinese protectorate. It's called actually the Chinese protectorate of the West. Um, they rule under a Chinese uh, Tang protectorate um, for anywhere between 10 to 15 years. Um, in 673, Peroz shows up in Chang'an, the capital of the Tang, where he seems to become a very honored guest of the uh, Tang Emperor, uh, given Chinese titles, is given the right to build a temple, although we don't know what religion temple he's building, and then dies in 679. He's buried in the mausoleum of the Emperor Gaozang of the Tang in Chang'an. Today is actually a, a museum. You could go see it. Oh, there wow. are his name is included on an inscription in a pedestal, and there is an there is a statue, a headless statue, uh, that is uh, sort of based on some conjecture, but also some writing is probably him. 
this seems to be also the time that his son, Narse, who is in Chinese sources called Neshe, uh, is similarly taken by a Chinese general to the West. And they again try to install him on a Western throne. How much they actually had successful campaigns against the new power of the Islamic Caliphate and tried to conquer, we have no evidence of. We know that they ruled in this area under the Chinese auspices and suzerainty. Um, and of course, the Chinese are in that region until 750 uh, when they lose the bad, famous battle of uh, Talas to the yeah. Caliphate. Yeah. And, you know, thing. So during this period, at least during the earlier part of this period, Peruz and his son Narse, under Chinese control, are at least ruling how much they actually are campaigning against the uh, caliphate. We don't really know. And yes, they are buried in China. And uh, so in this case, China was an ally of the Iranian empire. Um, and I'm trying to determine how much of this is actually uh, writing that comes afterwards, perhaps by uh, Persians that remained uh, in, in Iran sort of, they were talking about how the Chinese empire comes and holds the hand of the Iran heir to the throne as he's dying. His grave is facing west towards Iran. Um, you know, it makes me think of the Pahlavi heir to the throne now and all of that. Is this something that's built up later uh, for propaganda purposes for Persians? Or that actually, is it's very, very barely mentioned in, in Iranian and Islamic sources. Actually, mostly Chinese sources. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, interesting. There are, there are mentions of this in the Persian and Islamic sources, but they actually have very little knowledge of this. Uh, it's actually the Chinese who claim this. It's it's the sources are mostly Chinese, and well, but they they are, they are not that late. They there are two chronicles of the Tang Dynasty, the larger and the smaller Tang uh, chronicles. Um, which would you know the um, they they mention the story actually. Usually Chinese sources or Chinese um, histories are a bit later written based on earlier material, uh, but this is how we know it. So actually, the the fact that we know this is from Chinese sources, uh, and we really discovered this when about 100 years ago, um, the a lot of these uh, Chinese sources were translated into French, and that's really where we first uh, got this news. In Islamic sources, the only remains we really have of uh, the descendants of Yazgard is either of a very, of, of course, mythological, non, uh, absolutely unfounded story that the daughter of Yazgird, the last emperor, so the sister of this Piruz, supposedly, marries um, the third Shia Imam, Hussein, and is the mother of the fourth Shia Imam Ali. Oh, wow. Okay. Which is, which is completely mythological. Or probably the true story that the daughter of Vahram, the second son of Yazgir the third, so the younger brother of this Peroz, he gets defeated by the Umayyads. And he actually does marry the Caliph Valid the uh, first and is the mother of the Caliph Yazid the third. That probably is a real story. He probably, she probably really did matter. But that's really what remains in Islamic sources. Um, the stories of them being in China, being buried towards Iran, being given um, the uh, 
um, uh, permission to build a temple, ruling in the name of. Uh, think these are all actually Chinese sources, not Islamic Iran. Why would the Chinese care about all of this to chronicle all of this? Is this was this important to them? Well, the Chinese do want to prove that they have a lot of power in the West. That you know, the I Chinese, see. in a sense, you could say China since the time time of uh, Emperor uh, the Emperor Qin um, have been really defining themselves against the Central Asian, what they call barbarians, you know, the Central Asian tribes. Yeah. So control of Central Asia for the Chinese was always a sort of a existential issue. So having control as far as that, and particularly since, since this is the uh, uh, area where Buddhism comes from, mm -hmm. and the Chinese really get introduced to Buddhism, not through India, but through what is today Afghanistan. So them controlling the center of Buddhism for them is a matter of prestige. So they obviously mention this, plus the fact that they are consummate record keepers. Uh, so, but yeah, anyway, the sources are actually Chinese sources. In preparing for this conversation with you, uh, I was interested in Sasanian uh, warfare, obviously. We discussed it in the last segment. And one of the things that I kept on coming across online and also on social media um, is women warriors during the Sasanian period. And uh, particularly on social media, much of this is married into the current uh, women-led and women-sustained uprising uh, protests in Iran. Yeah. Um, so I made a point to ask you about this. Were women in the military during the Sasanian period? Not that we have any evidence of, no. Don't really no. <laughs> so there's no such a thing of women generals, women warriors, women fighting corps. Not really that we have anything. We have references to warrior women in you know the one that pops into my head mostly right now is the sister of Vahram Chobin, this yeah, yeah, yeah. Sasanian general slash rebel who rebels actually against Khosrow II's. In, his, in the earlier part of his rule. And she's known, she's, she's mentioned to be somebody who, you know, rides a horse and fights and things of, things of the sort. And that her shifting her loyalty from her brother to Khosrow II is the reason that her brother loses. You know, this is like Interesting. she becomes an ally of Khosrow. You know, these things are do exist. We obviously have two Sasanian queens, regnant queens. One of them actually issues coins with her own yeah. face on it, with everything like that. So we do have, it, it's not that women weren't at all considered, uh, but no, we don't have really cores of women fighters. We don't really know anyway that much about Sasanian um, military until the very end, really. There's very little known about who made up the army. But no, we have no really references. Interesting. Um, my last question is this. Um, do you think that the people of Iran are leaning more and more to their Persian past, particularly Sasanian past? I've seen I've seen it in in, in Europe. People uh, were demonstrating, protesting in the last two three months with the standard with the flag of the Sasanian Empire. I don't know if you saw any of these. Um, oh, that flag, yeah. That flag, yeah. So, do you think there's a shift uh, to that? 
I taught this past term at Leiden University a course called The Use of an Abuse of Ancient History in Formation of Modern Iranian Nationalism. <laughs> what you're asking is a really, really complicated process of modern Iranian nation building, which I think really requires its own, well, course. I, it took me 13 weeks to kind of scratch the surface of this. Um, um, I feel like generally during the Pahlavi period, we had a very strong ancientism, yeah. interest in the ancients. I feel like Achaemenids were a lot more of interest. And um, if you read the book by uh, my very good friend and colleague, uh, Talin Grigor, she actually sort of, based on iconography and based on you know what's the, the visual sources for Iran also makes this case an argument. But Sasanians are inevitable. As I said, I think most of what we recognize as Iranian, which the Pahlavis were then trying to promote, is actually rooted in the Sasanian period. So Sasanians were inevitable. But I actually think that in a sense, you know, who cares? They're all dead. But they actually lost to academia. You say that as a historian. I love it. <laughs> yeah, because, because I'm not a nostalgist. I'm a historian. I'm a yeah, scholar. yeah. I'm not there in order to wax nostalgically about their people. Um, the Sasanians really take a backseat to the um, Achaemenids. Achaemenids are the ones that get promoted. If you see, like in the past 10, 15 years, there's a celebration of the day of Cyrus the Great. The most visible sort of thing that we have with reference is Cyrus's cylinder. Yeah. Um, if you go to any Iranian restaurant, you see Achaemenid soldiers with their um, uh, spears and standing hijabon, there, yeah. standing there. So it's actually the Achaemenids that are of more interest. But yes, certain things of the Sasanians are inevitable. And particularly since Sasanians, interestingly enough, are somehow associated with the, you know, the exact... The traditional source of Iranian history, which is something like the Shahnameh, they are mentioned in the Shahnameh, while yeah. the Achaemenids are not, obviously. Yeah. Right. So, so there is a lot of references to them, but I feel like that if I was going to say that the sort of nostalgia for ancients exists is actually an Achaemenid nostalgia, and Sasanians and well, Parthians very much so are actually neglected in this. Thing. Yeah. 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 Dr. Azakhani, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you so very much. You debunked many of my beliefs about the Sasanian Empire. Yeah, I know. It's, it's one of those things. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience.
Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News, we peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news. Thank you.